I mean, in, in so many ways, it can be really useful because it can help us to understand things in a way that other ways of understanding the world can't. Um, it helps us to see, well, if, if I do this one thing, does it really have an impact on this other thing? And I think a lot of parents want to know that. Um, they want to know that a decision they're making today is most likely going to have some certain outcome tomorrow or in the future. In a way, it's, I think we crave the sense of control. Welcome to Raising Adults, the groundbreaking parenting podcast that starts with the end in mind. We're your co-hosts, Dina Thayer and Kira Dorian. We created future-focused parenting to take families from surviving to thriving. So join us as we help you stop raising kids and start raising adults. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Raising Adults podcast. Kira and Dina here in the laundry room office combo pack. Dina, how are you this week? Well, I'm still up against the throw pillows, and I'm <laughs> happy to report I have not yet suffocated. So all is well. Okay. It's going well then. That's yeah. amazing. Fantastic. Well, we have an amazing guest today on the show. We've just, we unfortunately did not hit record in time for you to hear the conversation that just went down before we said hello. But we discovered that our guest, Jen Lumenlon, who hosts the Your Parenting Mojo podcast, um, is connected to Dina and I in the most phenomenal ways. <laughs> so, Jen, I'm going to have you just say hi hello. <laughs> before we get started. Should we tell our listeners the weird yes. connection that just happened? Okay. So, Jen, you are originally from? I'm from Essex, which all your British listeners will know exactly what that means, and all your American and other listeners will say, what? <laughs> Why does that right. matter? So, yes, I'm an Essex girl. <laughs> She's an Essex girl, and my friend Claire, who I know is listening, who lives in Essex, is jumping up and down <laughs> right now. And she is from the exact same town that my husband, that Dave was born in, and or not born in, but he was raised there and went to school there. And they are this almost the exact same age. Mm -hmm. It's the bananas. And then she moved to a town right near the town where my husband went to university. So super bizarre. And so we're laughing and giggling about this. And then we discover. <laughs> then Kira, as the prepared host that she is, is asking Jen how to pronounce her last name. <laughs> and she explains that it's Filipino. Well, as our listeners know, I also once had a Filipino last name because I have a couple Filipino children. So it was just, it was just so bizarre that, I mean, so within bizarre. the span of five minutes, all these just random little, it's like the synapses in your brain firing and connecting. It was like, what? <laughs> we have all these random things in common. And in between, there was a thing about my dad used to teach at the same yes. school. Husband right, where Dave went. I know. Totally, totally <laughs> bananas. So... Yeah. Well, okay. So we're in for a great chat, I think, today. I'm going to go ahead and introduce you, Jen, and then we can sort of dive right in. But I love the topic that we're going to discuss today because Jen is a research-based parent and really kind of leans into that type of approach to how she parents and how the research can inform her parenting. And also, I love this, the spots where the research doesn't give us the information we need and we have to look elsewhere. And I just think for me, especially as someone who would like to be research-based, but I just don't have the background in that. My brain doesn't know how to do that the way that I think that yours does, Jen. And so I think it's really cool to be able to share with our listeners how they might be able to go about taking this approach and how it can actually really empower them as parents. Awesome. So let me read your bio because it's pretty great. So Jen Lumenlon, I said it correctly, I'm yeah. proud of myself, <laughs> holds a Master of Science in Psychology, Child Development, 
and a Master of Education and hosts the Your Parenting Mojo podcast, which is a reference guide for parents of toddlers and preschoolers based on scientific researchers and the principles of respectful parenting. In each episode, she examines a topic related to parenting and child development from all sides to help parents understand how to make decisions about raising their children. She lives in California with her husband and daughter. So Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So do you want to start by just telling everyone a little bit about you and your family and just what kind of led up to the discussion that we're going to have today? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I never saw myself as a parent. (laughs) I never wanted to be a parent, had no interest in it whatsoever. And um, that kind of sets the stage for why I ended up here, why why I ended up using scientific research and and having a podcast and talking about the podcast with other other people, um, which is that when my daughter was born a little over six years ago now, I realized what I had sort of known all along, which was that I had no parenting instinct whatsoever, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I already knew I had really great research skills and I thought, hmm, there's an opportunity. (laughs) I can use my research skills to plug my gaps in parenting intuition. And that was sort of how the podcast was born because I... Uh, ended up going back to school and getting this master's in psychology focused on child development, basically because I had no idea what I was doing. I I wanted some way to try to understand what is the framework around the ideas I should even be thinking about here. And uh, that was what the master's in psychology ended up helping me to do. And uh, I think I've gone far beyond that now. I, I typically think of the average podcast episode is sort of like a class for a master's degree. And so I've got 120 episodes by now. (laughs) And so that's probably a couple more master's degrees if you count in that way. Um, and, And I just found that it's a really invaluable tool to be able to understand what does the research say, not just from, you know, what the email that you get from baby center that says five ways you can see if your child has a developmental delay and it will cite one study and not give you any sense of how that fits into the body of literature on a topic. And it's sort of just designed to get you to click through and and for them to get more revenue. Um, But really, what does the body of literature say about this? Is this one new study even worth paying attention to? Does it, is it an outlier or does it confirm something we already thought to be true in the first place? And so that was really something that I found to be missing. I couldn't find that information anywhere. And so I decided to create it myself. That's fantastic. And I really respect that you admitted that you feel like my parenting instincts, they were not spot on. It was not that it wasn't spot on, is that they weren't there at all. (laughs) Okay, so they were just missing. And but for you to go, oh, here's where my strengths are, and then use that to fill the holes. That's so clever. So I know you already kind of talked about why you decided to use scientific research as a foundational element of your parenting. But I know probably for many parents, we might lean differently than you and maybe not feel like strong researchers or Mm -hmm. research and statistics and analysis might actually even feel a little bit intimidating, I think, to Mm -hmm. some parents. So I'm excited for you to break this down and make it accessible for us. So maybe you can start with, hey, let me tell you what's great about it. So Jen, what benefits 
benefits does scientific research have as it pertains to parenting? I mean, in, in so many ways, it can be really useful because it can help us to understand things in a way that other ways of understanding the world can't. Um, it helps us to see, well, if, if I do this one thing, does it really have an impact on this other thing? And I think a lot of parents want to know that. Um, they want to know that a decision they're making today is most likely going to have some certain outcome tomorrow or in the future. In a way, it's, I think we crave the sense of control. <laughs> we crave knowing what's going to happen, knowing that we're not going to screw this up. And um, I, I think some parents have, you know, some parents were fortunate to have had excellent parents and a well-developed sense of intuition, and they don't necessarily need the research as much. Uh, but for those of us who are uh, on a little more shaky ground on that regard, or uh, we're maybe we're looking at the way we were raised and we're saying, I do not want to raise my children that way. Or we're just saying, I don't really know how I feel about this and I, I need some tools to guide me. Then scientific research can be a useful tool to help to fill that gap, to help us to understand, well, what actually might happen here if I do X, is Y likely to result or is some other thing likely to happen instead? I love that. Wow. So I'm curious, you know, as you dug into the research and you had these research skills and you're discovering all this information, how then does the research change your approach to parenting? And I'm also curious, I want to throw in what happens when the research is conflicting and how do you handle that? Because we see that all the time, right? Like, you know, it's like with eggs, eggs cause cholesterol. No, eggs are great for you. No, they're going to kill you. You know, and I think with parent parenting, that is especially true. Yeah. So how does it influence your parenting once you have this information? Yeah, I, I think I wrote an article, uh, it was probably a year or more ago now called Why Does, uh, Scientific, Why Does Parenting Advice Change So Often? <laughs> Um, yeah. And so, I mean, let's start with how has it approached, changed my approach to parenting and then we can come back to why does it change? Um, so how does it, uh, how has it changed my parenting? It's been profound. It's been an absolutely profound shift. Almost everything that I, the way that I was raised and the way that I would think, well, of course that's the natural, natural logical way of doing it turns out to be something that isn't necessarily <laughs> research supported. So, uh, just as a, a simple example, eating vegetables, um, when I was growing up, my parents would say, you better clean your plate. And if you don't clean your plate, you're not getting dessert. And specifically, if you don't eat your vegetables, you're not getting dessert. And so when we, when we take a step back from that and we think, well, what, what is our goal here? What, what are we trying to do when we're, we're talking with our children about food? Most of us are trying to uh, raise a child who has a healthy relationship with food, who doesn't uh, feel as though they must never eat certain kinds of foods or can only eat certain kinds of foods, that they feel they can have a balanced diet and they can enjoy a lot of different kinds of foods in moderation. And when we are talking about doing things like essentially bribing children to eat vegetables, which is what we're doing, the, the dessert is the bribe and eating vegetables is the thing you have to do. We are setting up the vegetable as what's called a gateway food or a gateway action. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're making the, the reward at the other end more likable. We're making the gateway food or the gateway action less likable. And uh, what predicts, is, what has the research shown is the only predictor of a child who is willing to eat vegetables. It's how much they like vegetables. 
so when we bribe a child to eat vegetables, we, and I don't like to use sort of war metaphors, but in this case, I think it's sort of appropriate. We're winning the battle. We're, we're getting the child to eat the vegetables on this occasion. We feel like, oh, I did my job as a parent today. They ate a serving of vegetables today, but we're losing the war because we're not setting our child up to like and enjoy vegetables, which is probably going to come back to haunt us when they don't want to eat vegetables down the line. That is really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it makes so much sense too, right? Like it you does. hear it presented like that and you're For like, sure. hmm, interesting. Uh-huh. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And then you can, of course, extrapolate that to all so many other kinds of parenting. I mean, one that's really relevant right now is related to screen time when uh, and schoolwork. And, and a lot of parents are finding themselves in the position of being the enforcer, you know, the, the, a position they've never been in before, where it used to be the teacher and the peers and the behavior behavior charts and the the grades and all the rest of it that happened at school that motivated their children to engage in schoolwork. And now a lot of that is not happening. And so the parents are finding themselves being the one who has to motivate their child to do something they don't really want to do. And okay, well, is my goal to get my kid to do this single task? Or do I want my child to have a lifelong love of learning? And if it's to get them to do the task, then, you know, rewarding them with screen time or whatever is their favorite thing at the other end, not so bad. But if you want them to have a love of learning, then bribing them to engage in learning activities is probably actually not going to have the result that we hope it will. Sure. Actually could be really counterproductive. Certainly can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that so so that's kind of one just one example on one topic. And it I mean it goes really across the board. I mean, I, I was listening to some of your episodes over the last few days and one that struck out to me was on on healthy body image. And uh, something that I learned when I was researching that was, you know, we think, oh, well, I, I'll teach my daughter what's called media literacy, which is I'll teach her that images are airbrushed and that these aren't real people and that she shouldn't aspire to having this certain kind of body because it's not actually real anyway. And what the research has shown us on that front is that, you know, we can we can do that and that that is important work, but that by itself is not enough. Because if you show images of, of women in pictures who have been airbrushed, Airbrushed and you you show those pictures to women in experimental situation and, and you say you know these are airbrushed right now and and do some journaling and and think about wh- what is it that you want to take away from this lesson what the women say is you know oh that's so terrible that should never happen I, I wish I didn't have to bring up a child in the world where uh, images were doctored in this way and then they pause and then they say how do I get my arms to be that thin mm, wow. <laughs> And so we, what we realize is that just learning that an image isn't airbrushed is not enough. We, we, we would hope that if we can logically, rationally teach our child, this image is airbrushed, don't aspire to it, that then our child will say, oh yeah, of course I'm not going to aspire to that. But in actuality, it doesn't work that way for us and it doesn't work that way for them. And self-compassion is a tool that's so needed and, and so much more powerful in, in terms of combating those kinds of messages that our, our children get from media. Mm, wow. What about when the research conflicts? <laughs> well, uh, it does conflict almost, <laughs> almost all the time. And so that's really, I mean, that goes back to the story about why I started the show in the first place was because most of the resources I was finding would be from somebody who would find one study. Maybe it was a study that just got released. Maybe it was the first study that popped up when you Google growth mindset or grit or whatever the topic of the day is. And, and that will often have a sort of positive, 
negative um, result. And then the person who's writing the article will say, okay, well, growth mindset is important. Grit is important. And so uh, here are five ways you can get growth mindset or grit. But what we need to understand is, well, was that study an outlier? Did it confirm what decades of research have shown or did it go in a completely different direction? Do we understand if the results went in a completely different direction, why that is? And is that, you know, should we pay attention to that? And should that pull our attention in that way? Or the fact that they they modeled the results differently or they set up the study differently uh, should mean that we look at it and we say, yeah, you know what? We actually think that this other way that everybody else has been doing it is probably the better way to understand this. So you don't really kind of get to that until you get into reading those papers and, and understanding them. And even then there there can be some conflicts and, and we're, we're kind of starting to get into ways that the scientific research falls short. You know, we have this idea that science is neutral. Science is value neutral. And so sometimes I get negative comments on uh, in my reviews on Apple Podcasts for the, for the podcast episodes because, because I'm biased, uh, because scientific research is supposed to be unbiased. But actually, researchers have biases. You have biases. I have biases. We all have biases. And these can all work their way into the study in so many different ways. And if we can seek to understand those things and tease those apart and say, okay, this is how this all fits together. <laughs> and therefore we believe that overall, um, we can do a, what's called a meta-analysis and say, overall, statistically speaking, we think the evidence points in this direction. Then we can kind of head off in that direction and ignore those three studies over there that, that said something different. Yeah, that's really important. And I think you started to kind of talk about this, maybe a little bit of the areas where research falls short after talking about all the ways that it's amazing. <laughs> and besides things like bias on the part of the researchers, or of course, even us going in, right, we can have confirmation mm -hmm. bias. Like, I'm interested in finding something that will confirm what I already think. Yes. <laughs> what are other things that we should watch for? I mean, where where else does maybe scientific research fall short? Scientific research is an incredibly useful tool if you understand its limitations. And so, yeah, that, that bias that we talked about can come in at so many different phases in the study from, from just the way the question is posed in the first place at the outset of the study, uh, which can, I, I've seen plenty of, plenty of studies of immigrants uh, where the researcher is white and the question is phrased in a way that makes sense to the white researcher, but that just doesn't make sense to the study participants. There are uh, the, the typical way that samples are drawn for, uh, for these kinds of research studies is that the person doing the research is probably a psychologist professor. They're probably teaching a Psych 101 class in a university, and they will offer their students course credit in exchange for doing a survey or whatever, you know, participating in whatever study that they're working on right now. And so what we end up with is a really good picture of how undergraduates in North America, in, in the US particularly, think about all these issues. And then the results are kind of extrapolated as if they're applicable to all mankind, when that's certainly not the case. We don't even know if it's applicable to young children, to adults, to you know old people. Um, we we just have no idea how those things apply outside of that 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 narrow band of of children who are young adults who are in that undergraduate setting. And and that's been called out over the last probably decade or so as uh, it's called weirdness in the research. It stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. 
<laughs> and the fact that 90, 90 plus percent of, of psychological research is done on uh, people and particularly college students in these countries and, uh, and then extrapolate it as if it's applicable to everybody when actually we have no idea if that's the case. I mean, it can happen in, in, even in terms of the way the analysis is conducted and when you uh, do a certain kind of analysis and you'll, you'll throw out one variable that doesn't seem as though it's relevant and, and actually you probably should have left that in because it is having meaningful impact on the results. And so there are these kinds of things happen throughout the study and each of those uh, decisions is a result of some person's uh, upbringing and training and the biases that they bring to this and those kind of stack up through the process of doing the research and analyzing the research and so to to think of science as value free as, as neutral is just a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what research is it has values baked into it and our job is to understand those and to see how can it serve us anyway? Okay. So now I want to know where that leaves your podcast. So you know, <laughs> for someone like, I mean, you just said a lot of really smart things that I'm sitting here kind of trying to unpack. <laughs> um, like, wow. I mean, I'm picturing, here's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing myself going to my computer and researching something and pulling up a study and having no idea how to do what you just did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's the goal of the podcast. It right? is. <laughs> is to help, help someone like me who has no research instincts but has some really good parenting instincts <laughs> get that information and be able to make decisions. So tell us maybe about your show and how that unfolds. Yes, how it helps us non-researchy types. <laughs> 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 yeah. I feel like you're much better at this than oh. I am. You don't get overwhelmed the way I do, I don't think. Uh, okay. You're good at like being able to look at all the parts and like I get stressed. I'm like, it's too much information. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny how we all bring different skills to this, right? I mean, I get so many people saying, well, how do you do this? And this must be so, so difficult. And, and it's, it's, I honestly, I don't think that I'm that smart. It's just that I enjoy this kind of work and this kind of thinking. And so it's not a burden to me. It, I don't look at a list of 50 results on Google Scholar and think, you know, oh, this is overwhelming. I think, okay, here we go. <laughs> right. You don't curl up into a ball no. like I do. <laughs> no. I, and I, I was thinking about that recently, actually, because I'm just, I'm kind of getting into a phase where I'm researching a lot of, of putting preliminary research into a lot of podcast episodes and kind of seeing which ones pan out. And um, I was thinking, okay, what, what is it I like about this so much? And what is the phase I like? And it's kind of that moment where I'm figuring out, okay, is, is this time Topic kind of bounded in the right way? Um, is it uh, discrete enough that I can find a, the precise term that's going to yield a bunch of studies, but not too many studies that we can actually get enough research, but not too much research to understand what the body of research says on this particular topic? And, and that really, that's kind of it for me. <laughs> and, and that process of reading through them and, okay, well, what, what is this one really saying? And how is it drawing that conclusion? And how is that different from what this one is saying? I, I find that fun. I don't find it intimidating at all. And, and so we all bring these unique skill sets to 
to the world. And I just kind of see this as mine and, and my responsibility to share it with others who, who want this information, who want to be able to act on this information, but they bring other skill sets that are, are sorely lacking, lacking in me <laughs> to the world. And so the world needs their abilities and the world needs mine in, in, in those different ways. So, um, so yeah, on, on the show, we really try to, I mean, we take one issue at a time, whether it's grit or growth mindset or eating vegetables or whatever it is and say, okay, well, where, where are we going with this? What is the body of research saying as a whole? And where are we falling short here? Because there are plenty of ways where it falls short. And, and I would say that primary among these is the fact that scientific research is kind of grounded in a, a patriarchal view of the world. And I think that there's a tendency to, oh, she said the P word. <laughs> she must be a feminist. I, I get dinged for that as well. Um, and I haven't historically, I'm going to be honest here, I haven't thought of myself as a feminist because I shave my legs. <laughs> I'm like, can I really be a feminist if I shave my legs? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, the more I've learned about feminism, which wasn't something I'd really learned much about, the more I learned, you know what? I kind of am because I kind of agree with this vision of the world where everybody brings their value to the world, where where we're not dominated by a certain, you know, one group of people's way of viewing the world, that an intersectional feminist lens that values everybody's contribution is kind of a world I want to be in, is what a world I want to raise my daughter in. And so where where we see scientific research is is purported to be value neutral and cognitive based explanations, you know, things that happen in your mind are the, of primary importance and issues that are seen as more kind of feminine based, like how do we experience the world with our bodies? I mean, it wasn't until a year ago that I learned that my body has something to say about my experience as a person uh, because our patriarchal society has sort of made this, this body brain split where cognitive thinking is valued. And because I think in that way, um, my thinking is valued. But there's this whole other way of processing information in our bodies that the research has very little to say about that. And so how can we bring in that kind of understanding of the world and what else is missing out there that the research doesn't even consider? So that's what I'm now trying to shift the podcast to do is to bring in more of that as well, not to neglect the research, to say, yeah, we're going to use it where it where it's helpful. But also there's this other stuff that we need to consider as well. It sounds like a very balanced approach to presenting that information. It does. We're trying. <laughs> and it's robust. And people like me who don't lean toward research land really need it as well. So mm -hmm. that's fabulous. So so Jen, if people do want to find you, if they would like to check out your podcast, if they would like to follow you on social, can you just provide us with ways to connect with you? Give us all the things, the social media handles, your podcast, website, all that good stuff. Yeah, it's relatively easy, actually. Um, everything can be found through yourparentingmojo.com is the, the name of the podcast and the website. And uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at yourparentingmojo. So, uh, but really everything flows through the website and you can subscribe to the show to get updates. Um, I post a new episode every other week with uh, some aspect of research-based information or you know, move, moving beyond the research where the research is lacking. And every other week, I release a, a blog post where it kind of draws ideas together across the podcast episode. So in the podcast episodes, we go deep and say, let's really understand this topic. In the blog post, we kind of take a step back and say, okay, well, now we really understand these topics. How does that all fit together? What does that mean for the way we're raising our children? 
children. Um, and so you can get all of that at yourparentingmojo.com. Wow. Fabulous, Jen. Thank you so much for sharing with our listeners. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's awesome that we have so many connections in so many yeah, sure. areas of our lives. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, everyone, we hope that you found that as interesting as we did. <laughs> that was like kind of mind-blowing for me, Dina. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm oh. still processing. And I was yeah. taking notes, literally taking notes. Yeah. Because Amazing. Just, there's a lot to unpack. And what a fantastic resource for parents like me. And you, although and I don't, I don't necessarily buy that you fit entirely into that category because I've seen you research. You're pretty good at it. <laughs> an aptitude for something and enjoyment are not always yes, together, that's a great right? Point. That's a great so, point. So yeah. you know, just my first question to her. I mean, it really was true. Like for me, this is almost a little bit intimidating. So I think her breaking it down and making it accessible and like, you know what, you can do this too. Even if this isn't the, your natural bent, I think is really helpful to parents who might feel a little bit, that's a little bit daunting to them. Yeah, absolutely. So listeners do go check out Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast. I think you will get as much out of it as, as I will. <laughs> um, and we thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to being with you next week. Don't forget, if you haven't yet followed us on Facebook and Instagram, we are at Future Focused Parenting. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, you're going to want to hit that subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a wonderful week. Raising Adults is produced by Kira Dorian and Dina Thayer and recorded partially in my laundry room, partially in Dina's office. Editing by Allison Preisinger. Music by Seattle band Hannah Lee. Thanks for listening. <laughs>